October is over, and I'm really glad. October was probably the craziest month of our lives. And that's saying something for Jim and me, because we, we keep a pretty busy schedule. Okay, but October was award-winning for over-scheduling. Well, first of all, we remodeled our kitchen. Okay, enough said. You know, we farmed out the dog. We moved everything on the first floor of our home into the garage. Our contractors said, you know what? When we start demolition, it's going to look like a bomb went off in your house. And it did. Okay? I went to Ohio to care for my parents, came back. We flew to Nicaragua. Let's just throw a go team trip in there. <laughs> and Jim and I both taught at a pastor's conference. It went well. Really precious people. Came back. Jim's publisher... Okay, the publisher who thought this is a great idea to take Jim's next book and make it four books, started sending edited copies and versions for him to correct and rewrite. Okay, and then of course, as you know, the pressure of the ballroom dance classes began, <laughs> which for one of us really raises the stress level. <laughs> but on top of all the craziness, we decided to co-preach a marriage series. Now, let me correct that. Jim decided it was a good idea that we co-preach a marriage series. I objected. I said, honey, that sounds like a bridge too far. You know, that's going to put a lot of strain on our marriage. Do you know what he said? Hey, look at it this way. By week three, when we teach on confession and forgiveness, we'll have a lot of personal illustrations. <laughs> Do you know he's right? <laughs> we just can't share them publicly. <laughs> Seriously, we are in the third week of a five-part marriage series called I Do. We're considering five commitments to make love last. Well, here's our commitment for today. Practice confession and forgiveness. Practice confession and forgiveness. And when we say practice, we mean practice. Because if you're married, confession and forgiveness are something you're going to have to do again and again and again. Let me ask you a question. Are you a sinner? That was weak. Let's work backwards. Are you perfect? No. Therefore, you are a sinner. How about this? Did you marry a sinner? Much easier question. Okay, so if you are a sinner living with a sinner, then confession and forgiveness must become a lifestyle, a lifestyle, if you're going to make love last in a marriage. Okay, so let's begin with confession. If you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, you know, even if you got a Bible on your iPhone... Unless you know how to underline and mark up, and you know, it's just easier to do it in the leather-bound, gold-edged Bible. So turn to 1 John chapter 1 with me. We're going to look at a, a passage together, and uh, Sue and I are going to give you three steps from 1 John 1 that will help you practice confession in your marriage. And if you're single, again, this applies to any significant relationship in your life. So write these down. You've got an outline. Fill it in as we go along. Step number one in practicing confession is to understand how sin damages relationships. Understand how sin damages relationships. Begin reading with me at verse uh, 5. You'll see it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. John, the Apostle John says, This is the message we've heard from him, from God, 
and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Okay, that last verse, verse 7, I want to park on for a, a moment here. John tells us how important it is that we walk in the light. Okay, what does it mean to walk in the light? Does walking in the light mean walking in sinlessness? Well, it couldn't mean that because at the end of the same verse, verse 7, it says that as we make a practice of walking in the light, then Jesus will regularly purify us by his blood shed on the cross from sin. So if walking in the light is sinlessness, there would be no sin from which Jesus would have to purify us. So walking in the light can't mean sinlessness. What does it mean? Walking in the light means being open about our sin. Walking in the light means being transparent about our sin. You know, compare that to walking in the darkness where you cover up your sin, where you deny your sin, where you blame your sin on somebody else. See, walking in the light means making a practice of confessing your sin. You confess it to God and you confess it to those in your life who've been negatively impacted by it, which if you're married, uh, very often will be your spouse. Now, what happens when we don't, when we don't confess our sin? What happens if we instead choose to walk in the darkness? John tells us in the verses I just read to you that has huge, huge repercussions in our relationships. I want you to note a special word that he uses twice here. It's the word fellowship. And this is where if you have your own Bible, it helps. I want you to circle the word twice. Okay, once in verse 6, it refers to fellowship with God. And then a second time in verse 7, it refers to fellowship with one another. But in, in both cases... If you look at the text, John is telling us if we want relational harmony, if we want fellowship with God and with other people, then we got to stop walking in the darkness. we got to stop covering up our sin. When we fail to practice confession, we then allow sin to damage our relationships. I'm in a men's community group on Wednesday mornings, and we've been going through this Bible study called Respectable Sins. And the, uh, the gist of the su study is that there are a lot of sins out there that we don't consider to be a big deal. They're respectable sins, and so we don't deal with them in our lives. So I asked the guys in, in my group, I said, so how would you know? How would you even know if you're guilty of respectable sins? And one of the guys answered immediately, ask my wife. <laughs> now, now it, it, that's funny uh, in one sense, but in another sense, it's not so funny because it's reality, isn't it? I mean, the, the reality is that the people who are closest to us, the people we love the most, often end up bearing the brunt of our sinfulness. Dr. Tim Keller put it this way in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, a book that, by the way, is our book of the month here at Christ Community Church. So at any of our four campuses, I hope you'll consider, if you're married, picking this book up. I try to read like one marriage book a year at least, just as a, a great contribution to your marriage. So this is what he writes. He says, my wife does not learn about my sins like my physician learns about my diseases or like my counselor learns about my fears. Now she knows my sins because they so often are committed against her. She knows I'm insensitive because I'm insensitive to her. She knows I'm selfish because I'm selfish to her. 
And there's the great problem of marriage. The one person in the world who holds your heart in her hand, whose approval and affirmation you most long for and need, is the one who's hurt more deeply by your sins than anyone else on the planet. That's powerful stuff. You hear what Keller is saying? He's saying, yeah, we long. We long for a close relationship with our spouse, but that very relationship is constantly being damaged by sin. So, so what can we do about the problem? Practice confession. Practice confession. Now, just a side note application here. The next time you find yourself in a conflict in your marriage, say to yourself, the real enemy here is not my spouse. The real enemy is sin. Okay, the real enemy here is not my spouse. The real enemy is sin. I want you to say that with me out loud, all four campuses, even if you're single. You'll need it. You'll need it. Here we go. The real enemy here is not my spouse. The real enemy is sin. Now, I saw some of you smirking as you said that, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you're, you're right. The real enemy is sin. My spouse is sin. <laughs> and, and, and it's probably true that your spouse's sin contributes to conflicts in your marriage, but so does your sin. See, the real enemy is sin on both your parts. So start seeing yourself as being on the same side as your spouse. You're, you're teammates, you're not opponents. It's not your sin versus her sin. It's you and her, if you're a guy, versus sin. You see the difference there? You have a common enemy. That enemy is sin. So go after that enemy together as comrades in arms. And how do you do that? Well, you practice confession. If you practice confession, if you'll openly admit your sin, if you'll walk in the light, then every conflict will become an opportunity for you to grow personally and for your marriage to grow relationally. And again, single people, this application works with any significant relationship in your life. I didn't even need to say that, did I? <laughs> okay, point number two is to humbly recognize the sin in your own life. Humbly recognize the sin in your own life. Okay, Jim's been alluding to this, but I want to say it more clearly. Now that you understand how sin damages relationships, you need to humbly recognize sin in your own life. Dr. Paul Tripp is a professional marriage counselor and has written that great book called What Did You Expect? And in the book, he tells the story of counseling this young couple and had listened and listened to them go on about the problems in their marriage. Finally, he asks them a pointed question. He said, what do you think is behind your problems? What's fundamentally wrong here? Instantly, both parties pointed their finger and said, he is, she is. What's wrong with our marriage? Jim is. <laughs> Sue is. Okay? Isn't that our natural tendency? Because we can see so clearly in the other person's life their sin, what's wrong with them, and yet we overlook the sin in our own lives. Please note what the Apostle John says about this natural tendency of ours in verses 8 and 10 of 1 John 1. I'm going to read the first half of the verses, and I want you to read loud and clear the second half of these verses, okay? 1 John 1, 8 and 10, if we claim to be without sin, 
We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Look at that natural tendency. We claim to be without sin. We claim we haven't sinned. Okay, that's our default mode. Those verses don't need any explaining. They're just straightforward. I am so much better at pointing out Jim's sin and seeing that sin than I am my own. I want to give you an example of this. Over the years of being married to a very busy pastor and leader, I have at times sat in judgment on what I call Jim's tone. Okay, he's in the middle. I realize he has this deadline every week of standing in front of thousands of people and has to deliver a message. But there are times when I want his full attention. You know, I just want to ask a simple question. Or I want to point out a household project that needs doing. And I want to show him what I got for 30% off at Kohl's, you know? <laughs> so even though he's writing this sermon, I expect him to, you know, pull out of study mode and give me his full focus and attention and respond to what I'm saying. After all, he's studying the Bible, for crying out loud. You know, you'd think he'd be oozing with patience and flexibility. <laughs> However, I went back to school to study the Bible for three years, and I found that my tone changed just a little bit. So when I'm working on a project or a paper uh, for school, and Jim is standing over my shoulder saying, honey, what's for dinner? And I'm like, are you serious? What's for dinner? This paper is what's for dinner. Can't you see I'm on page three and I got to write 10 by tomorrow morning? Now, for a while, I justified my tone. I called it intensity, you know, focus, sheer necessity. And then God's Holy Spirit held up the mirror and said, No, Sue, that would be rudeness, disrespectful, that would be impatience and self-focused, that would be sin, and you need to own that. You need to call it that. Step two of confession is to humbly recognize the sin in your own life. Now, just a word of warning before we move on to the next point. Oftentimes, in order to recognize the sin in our own lives, that sin must be pointed out to us by somebody else, because we're not going to see it on our own. And one of those somebody else's is God's Holy Spirit. If, if we ask him to and we are listening for his response. Now, when you listen to the words of King David at the end of Psalm 139, it's a powerful little prayer that King David prayed. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. Oh my goodness, King David is inviting God's spirit to scrutinize his life and then pauses to listen to what that might be in order to act on that and change that. I'm telling you, if you want to do one thing for your marriage, pray that prayer. Search me, O Lord. Know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. Okay, the other somebody else who's going to help us see the sin in our lives may well be our spouse. Because they live with us. They see it. What's our natural reaction going to be to that? Oh, thank you, sweetheart. 
If you hadn't pointed out that impatience, I'd have overlooked it. Now I can confess it. No, no, that is not our natural tendency. Our natural reaction is to tell our spouse to butt out. You go look in a mirror if you want to see some real sin. <laughs> no? And that's why we've added this word at the beginning of this directive. Humbly recognize the sin in your own life. Okay? It takes humility not to be defensive when your spouse points something out to you. It takes humility to weigh carefully what they say and to keep your mouth shut. Quieting that inner lawyer so wants to object. It takes humility to believe that this kind of feedback is one of God's methods to sand off your rough edges. Marriage, you see, is the workshop in which God is making you the person who looks more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, let's give you a third step in practicing confession. Step number three, quickly apologize to God and your spouse. Quickly apologize. Now, Sue's been having you look at verses 8 and 10 of 1 John 1. I want to take a look at the verse that's been sandwiched between 8 and 10. Verse 9, one of my favorite Bible verses. In fact, this is a verse that I recommend when a person first becomes a Christ follower. If this is you in, in recent days, this is a great verse to memorize because you're going to need it every day of your life. 1 John 1, 9, let me read it to you. John says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we make a, a regular habit of confessing our sins to God. And John says, there are two benefits that accrue to you if you'll do this. Benefit number one is God will forgive you. Benefit number two, I think, is even better. He not only forgives us because of what Christ did for us, paying for our sin on the cross, he also purifies us from all unrighteousness. He wipes the slate clean. When we confess our sin, God hits the reset button. He hits the clear history button. Now, friends, if you've never begun a relationship with God, this is actually the first step to beginning that relationship with a holy God, is coming before him humbly and saying, God, I'm a sinner. You know, get specific. What are your chronic sins? Tell God that. And then say, because of Jesus, what he did on the cross, paying the penalty for my sins, would you forgive me? Would you purify me from all unrighteousness? If you've never done that before, that's where it begins. So, so confession begins uh, by saying to God, I'm sorry. And that's not only a first-time thing that we do, it's something that we then learn to do on, on a regular basis. But James, a different New Testament epistle, James 5, verse 16, tells us that God is not the only person, the only party that we ought to apologize to, that we ought to confess our sins to. Listen to James 5, 16. It begins with these words. Therefore... Confess your sins to, say it with me, each other. Confess your sins to each other. So when we've sinned against our spouse, it's not only God who deserves an apology from us, we owe an apology to our spouse as well. Let, let, let me tell you an ironic thing about apologizing to your spouse. Before you do it, it you'll feel like, oh, this is going to be so humiliating. You know, I, I can't do this. 
after you do it, it feels absolutely exhilarating, liberating. You say, I'm so glad I did it. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you a personal illustration here, and I want to admit right up front, I'm a bit uncomfortable being as vulnerable as I'm going to be with you here. But I hope you could go to school on, on a negative example of mine. And speaking of school, the, the illustration dates back to Sue going to school for her master's degree several years ago. Now, Sue started on her master's degree back in the early days of our marriage, but then our first child, Emily, came along, and so Sue dropped out of school and decided to be a full-time mom. So fast forward two and a half decades, Sue decides to go back and complete her master's degree. Now, every day she goes to class, she comes home and she complains to me that her brain cells are too old to learn, you know, and that everybody in the master's program is like half of her age. And I don't believe a word of it because she ends up getting straight A's. She's a really smart girl. I mean, she married me. <laughs> okay, slip up. But one day she looks at me and she says, she says, you know, I really wish I'd gone back to school earlier. I wish I'd completed this master's degree as our kids were growing up, much like I completed my master's degree and my doctorate while our kids were, were growing up. She says, I, I wish I'd gone back to school earlier. Now, being the sensitive sort of guy that I am, I look at her and I say, oh, that's ridiculous. I say, you are such a passionate mom, I can't imagine you in a million years throttling back on child rearing in order to take classes. I mean, this is nothing but revisionist history. I don't get it. And Sue looks at me and she's very hurt. And that hurt lingers for a while. There's some tension in our marriage. And not too long after that, we decided to go to a marriage conference down in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of the first sessions, the presenter says, I, I just want to begin this conference by having you confess to your spouse any sins that you think have been damaging your relationship. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand. I want you to hold your spouse's hands, look in their eyes, and confess this sin. Now, this is why guys just love to go to marriage conferences. Because <laughs> some knucklehead will ask us to do something like this. So I'm holding Sue's hands and I'm looking in her eyes and I know exactly what I got to say. And I say, I'm really sorry for not taking seriously your desire to return to school earlier. And I watch as her eyes cloud up with tears and it's like a wall comes down because that's what happens when we confess sins. Walls come down. Bridges get built. It's not this humiliating thing that we fear. It's a liberating thing. So let me ask you today, if you're married, is there something that you need to apologize to your spouse about? You know, it may be something, something big. It may be something relatively small, but it's, it's sand in the gears. It, it may be something that's gone on for days, maybe even weeks, months, possibly a couple of years that it's gone unresolved. It may be something that just came, came up in the car on the way to church today that you argued about. If you need to apologize to your spouse today, I'd say, do it. And then make a habit 
a practice of doing it, a practice of walking in the light. Just a side note here. Some of you are married to a person who's not, not yet a Christ follower. What is your spouse's opinion of Christ followers? You know what it is. You know, Christ followers are self-righteous people who think they're better than everybody else. You heard that one before? So when you hardly ever apologize about anything, what you're doing is reinforcing that negative opinion of Christ followers. So you want to stir things up? You want to get your spouse to take your faith seriously? Start apologizing. Start confessing sin on a regular basis. So this is our first, the first half of commitment number three, to practice confession. Three steps. Understand how sin damages relationships. Number two, humbly recognize your own sin. Number three, quickly apologize to God and your spouse. Thank you. Yeah, that's going in my notes. <laughs> Don't forget the kiss. <laughs> Can you cut his mic? No, just kidding. <laughs> it's my turn. <laughs> I, I just want to say I'm really grateful that I am married to a man that can apologize, and that's not easy. That's not easy. Let me talk about forgiveness. This is the second half of commitment number three. Practice confession and forgiveness, okay? So let's look together at a new Bible passage that deals with this topic of forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4. Turn to Ephesians 4. Jim and I want to give you three steps to practicing forgiveness. Okay, number one is this. Don't allow your anger to simmer. Don't allow your anger to simmer. Okay, let's say that your spouse has done something to offend you, and you're angry, and maybe justifiably so. What are you supposed to do with that anger? It's a really good question. What do you do with that anger? Well, the first part of these verses tell us what not to do with that anger. So Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 say this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Okay, please note something here. The Apostle Paul does not say that it's always wrong to be angry or to respond that way. If your spouse has done something to offend you, anger may be an appropriate response initially. What Paul is saying, however, that you need to process that anger as soon as possible, And if you allow that anger to simmer, it could quite easily lead to sinful behavior on your part in response to your spouse's sin and even give the devil a foothold, which is not a good thing. I see it happening in marriages all the time, okay? A husband, for example, does something that offends his wife, and she responds in anger or hurt. Some of us don't get angry, we get hurt, okay? That might be justifiable. But her response to that anger, if she lets it simmer, if she does not process it, can lead her to sin in response to his behavior. So, for example, she makes a phone call to her best friend, and for 30 minutes she rags on what a jerk her husband is. Or she gets in the car and she drives to Geneva Commons and she racks up a credit card bill out of spite. 
She vacuums the family room meticulously in front of the TV while the bears are playing. <laughs> and the husband, he can play this game too. So the wife does something to offend him, and he responds in anger. And maybe that's understandable initially. But he doesn't deal with it. He doesn't process it. He lets it simmer. And so he then responds in a sinful way to her sinful behavior, okay? So he stomps around the house, slamming doors, yelling at the kids, kicking the dog. He may fire up his PC and head to an online porn site. You know, he may work longer and longer hours at the office and neglect his family. Don't allow your anger to simmer if your spouse sins against you in some way. Well, what's the alternative? Practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. Now, ideally, your spouse is going to recognize their sin and come and confess that to you and say, I'm sorry. Can we say those words just to practice? I'm sorry. Well, that was weak. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Okay? So forgiveness is going to be your response to their genuine apology, right? That's the ideal. But oftentimes, your spouse will not recognize their sin or own up to it, then what do you do? Well, if it's a small sin, you overlook it. Because 1 Peter 4.8 tells us love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Proverbs 19.11 says, It is to a person's glory to overlook an offense. Well, what if it's a big sin? Or it's any size sin, but it happens again and again and again. You may have to take the first step. You might have to initiate bringing that to your spouse's attention. And your hope is, of course, your goal is not to be spiteful, but to have genuine apology, genuine forgiveness, and reconciliation. Just a footnote, okay? If you are a conflict avoidance type person, like I am, okay, you may say, oh, let's just cover over. It's not a big deal. And you might even pride yourself in being gracious and forgiven, but really you're doing a slow burn, okay? Then you need to face the messiness and the uncomfortableness of confronting your spouse. That confrontation is absolutely necessary if there's genuine confession and forgiveness. So the question is, do you need to talk to your spouse today? Do you need to talk to them about their drinking too much or their spending too much time watching football or shopping or their use of harsh words with the kids or with yourself? Do you need to voice concern about a flirtatious comment with a coworker or a Facebook friend? Do you need to speak up about how hurtful it is to you when they criticize your parents or your extended family? Don't let the sun go down on your anger or your hurt. Okay, so practicing forgiveness begins with, now don't let your anger simmer. Uh, take it right to the uh, offending party. Be straightforward. Be kind, but don't be a chicken. Don't duck it. Now, let me give you steps two and, and three of forgiveness very briefly. They're extremely important, but I'm going to be brief because I want to want us to have time to celebrate communion uh, together after the sermon. So here's number two. Choose your words carefully. 
Go back to the Ephesians 4 passage with me. Choose your words carefully. Pick it up at verse 29. Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Stop there. Friends, when there is a conflict in our marriage... That conflict will never be resolved with confession and forgiveness unless you and your spouse choose your words carefully. And and even if your spouse is unwilling to do this, you determine for yourself you're going to choose your words carefully. Look at the opening line again of verse 29. Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. We We should probably all get this put on a wall plaque and post it in every room of our home. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Unwholesome talk just escalates conflict. Doesn't resolve it, escalates it. So let let me briefly note three kinds of unwholesome talk that I see in this text that we ought to stay away from if we're, we're trying to work things out with our spouse. And I'll begin all three with the letter S in the hopes that you'll remember them. Okay, number one, sarcasm. Look at the second half of verse 29. Paul says that we ought to use words that build each other up. You see that, build up? What's the opposite of build up? Call it out. Tear down. What does sarcasm do? It tears down. It disses. Sarcasm is used to make the other person look foolish, the other person look stupid. So no no sarcasm. Second kind of unwholesome talk to be avoided at all costs, swearing. Years ago, I heard someone define profanity this way. They said, profanity is a weak mind trying to express itself forcefully. See, that's why we swear, right? We we just want to be forceful. We want to communicate, you're really bugging me here. We really want to underscore a point. And so we sprinkle the argument with profanity. Friends, that's nothing but verbal violence. It's verbal abuse. When I, when I think of times past when I've thrown in a profane word in an argument with Sue, I could see her wince, almost like I had backhanded her. What, is, what does Paul say about that? Look, look at verse 31 again. He says, get rid of, you see that? Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling. Now, swearing's never going to lead to confession and forgiveness. It's never going to lead to reconciliation. Make up your mind now, today. We will argue till the cows come home, but we will not swear. We will not throw in an F-bomb. We will not use the S-word, the D-word, the H-word. No swearing. Third kind of unwholesome talk to clamp down on is in the middle of verse 31. It's the word slander. If you got your own Bible, just circle the word. When you get in a heated argument with your spouse, do you make sweeping comments about their character or about their sanity? Do you say things like, you never do such and such, or you always do such and such? That's slander. Let let, let me ask, does that work for you? 
Have, have you found slandering your spouse's character to be helpful in settling your differences? I didn't think so. If you eventually want to get to forgiveness and, and confession, then choose your words carefully. No sarcasm, no swearing, no slander. Make that decision right now where you're seated. In fact, say it with me. Let's say the three together. No sarcasm, no swearing, no slander. By the way, you'll never be able to tame your, your tongue by yourself. James says that in his New Testament epistle. He says the tongue's like a wild animal. If you think you can, can tame it on your own, good luck. This is why you need Christ in your life. This is why you need to repent and come to him and ask for the filling of his Holy Spirit because you're not going to get a guard. You're not going to put a guard. You're not going to put a lid on your mouth by yourself. Only God can help you do that. Number three, be as gracious with your spouse as God has been with you. Well, look at verse 32, the last verse in the chapter. Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, listen to this, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, we're about to celebrate communion. We're about to thank God for the extraordinary price he paid in order to make forgiveness available to us. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what it is to be forgiven by God? You know, initially, have you ever come to that point when you've repented of your sin where you've said to God, I am so sorry, and I want Christ to forgive me based upon what he did for me on the cross? That, that's not only something you do initially, that's something you, you then make a practice of. And let, let me tell you this, if you're married and you're struggling with confession and forgiveness in your life, listen, it's probably because you're not practicing confession and forgiveness in your relationship with God. See, if you're not confessing sins to God on a regular basis, what makes you think you're going to suck up the courage to confess your sins to your spouse? God's a lot easier to confess to than your wife is, than your husband is. That's where it begins. And if you're not being forgiven on a regular basis because you're confessing your sins, if on a daily basis you're not experiencing the washing of the blood of Christ over your life to purify you from all, all sin, if you're not experiencing what it's like to be freed up from all the crud that's built up in the previous 24 hours, if you don't know the joy of having God hit, hitting the reset button in your life and forgiving you once again, mercifully, graciously, then I doubt very much you're going to extend that same grace and mercy to your spouse. In fact, let me say this. When we go to communion, if there's anything outstanding in your relationship with your spouse and you're, you're standing beside that person while we do communion, you're not going to be able to have a lengthy conversation in the midst of a communion service. But here's what you can do. You know, I recommend you immediately, before you, you leave the auditorium at any of our four campuses, you immediately during the time of communion at least turn to your spouse and say, honey, we're going to get this thing sorted out. You know, we're, we're going to get to forgiveness. Forgiveness. 